uh, what I'm trying to do is is underscore the gravity of what what a covenant is, right? What that baptismal covenant means is essentially we're covenanting to enter into a community of shared suffering. And, you know, we're saying, I, so if you think about the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, right? First, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, repentance. Third, baptism. What the way I view that kind of progression is um, if you, you study, you meditate, you learn about the life of Jesus, about Jesus's mission. And um, I think Moses 7 helps us to, to frame it in these terms, right? Jesus's mission, the reason why Jesus took on human form was to be with us in our suffering, right? And to um, redeem us from that suffering, um, if you can think about it in those ways. And when you come to that realization, right, which is which that's kind of the faith part, you repent, right? And I'm not talking about repentance in terms of like itemizing your um, sins and bad behaviors and asking for forgiveness. But the more sort of global meaning of repentance from the Greek term, you know, metanoia, President Nelson has spoken about it and others have spoken about it. It's this it's kind of this like this altering of perspectives that takes place once you realize what Jesus um, was here to do, suddenly you view God, Jesus, your life, reality itself in a different way. Jesus landed to live righteously. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, and I want to give a special uh, shout out to the folks over at Coford Books. They are the ones who have made um, this interview possible, which will let you know, uh, available for purchase in the show notes is the book that we'll talk about. But he's more than a book, guys. He's more than just his writings. He is an individual that I'm excited to get to know a little bit more about. It is Ryan D. Ward. Welcome to the Cultural Hall. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Before we go any further, what does the D stand for? The D is for David. That's okay. my dad's name. Yeah. Okay, so in true in true uh, LDS fashion, I'm assuming you are then the oldest male born in your family. That is correct. Yes. <laughs> we do things in a traditional way. Tell me a little bit about Ryan D. Ward. Where are you from? What's your backstory? All that kind of stuff. <clears throat> okay, so um, I am from Rexburg, Idaho. I grew up there. Um, my dad is a professor or was a professor at Rick's, then Rick's College. Right. So, um, yeah, I grew up there, went to high school, uh, served a mission in Toronto, Canada, um, Toronto, Can the Toronto, Canada East mission. Um, and then I went to school uh, at Rick's College. And um, I believe I was one of the last graduating classes when it was actually Rick's College before it went to the four year BYU Idaho Um Got uh, met my wife there, um, and we got married. Um, and then uh, I studied psych. Well, in went at Rick's College, I guess it was only generals, but we went down to Utah State, um, where I studied psychology. Um, and then I decided I wanted to pursue graduate studies, so um, went to um, New Hampshire uh, to to go to graduate school. But after only a year there, my supervisor left to go back to Utah State. Um, <laughs> so. We went, we followed her there, and I got my PhD from Utah State in 2008. Went to uh, New York City to do postdoctoral work at Columbia um, wow. in the departments of psych psychiatry and then in neuroscience. Um, 
And after that, we moved to New Zealand, um, where I am a, a senior lecturer. That's kind of the equivalent of an associate professor um, in the U.S. system um, in psychology at the um, department at the University of Otago, um, which is on the South Island. Now, we've been living in New Zealand for about nine years now, a little over nine years. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me. I have, um, yeah, like I said, a wife um, named B, five kids. Um, and yeah, I don't study religious studies uh, as my <laughs> career. So. <laughs> so to dip your toe into all this will be exciting. Well, I've got to ask a few questions about, about your past. So, sure. uh, I didn't know anyone was actually from Rexburg. Oh so yeah. That, so, so that's exciting. But, but why, why Ryan D Ward and the opportunity that you have to go away to college? Why did you stay in Rexburg to go to college? Um, <clears throat> I mean, it was just kind of a thing that people did, um, I guess. Uh, like my, like I said, my dad was a professor there, so there was like, you know, the tuition break. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really know. And I feel like, um, I mean, I kind of feel that it was a similar thing when I went to school um, at Utah State. Like, like um, my wife uh, chided me about it. She, she wanted us to go to San Diego, you know, SDSU. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't know whether it was that that just felt too foreign or this was just kind of the pipeline that people go. You either you go to Rick's College, you go to BYU or somewhere in Utah. Right. Um, sure. And I feel like I was kind of that's kind of the mindset I was in. So, um, yeah, that's that's my reasoning, I guess. But then the pendulum swings the entire different way where, mm. you know, some people would say, yeah, going to be a uh, senior lecturer or a professor or, you know, going to a completely <clears throat> different country. Like I, I consider myself to be a little adventurous. I've lived a couple places, yeah. et cetera, but I'm not going and, you know, a half a world away and saying so long family. I've known Rexburg yeah. and now I'm, now I'm doing this thing. How did it go from not anywhere to other side of the world? Yeah. Well, um, well, we went to New York, which, you know, from Rexburg is pretty far away. <laughs> um, we really loved New York um, and our time that, time there it's kind of a really special place and quite different from anywhere else in the world really um certainly in the US and while i was doing um while i was in graduate school and um postdocing i kept running into this this guy who had similar research interests as me like we kept reading i kept reading his papers and we would meet at conferences and stuff and talk about a lot of things and um he was um I was really interested in potentially working with him. Um, but at the time he didn't have money for a postdoc um, mm -hmm. for, for a very long period of time. And I thought that sort of uprooting the family and moving to New Zealand for an uncertain amount of time, that didn't seem super wise. Um, sure. But my wife and I had always wanted to go to New Zealand. We thought it would be cool to visit um, a cool place. And so actually when I was um, doing my postdoc at Columbia, he wrote to me and said, hey, there's a um, there's a position opening up in our department, so you should apply for it. Um, and I did. And it turned out that it was his position that he was vacating. So um, and I don't know, we just felt really good about it. Like um, we were we were far away from our families and um, we're kind of the types of people who are OK with that. Like we we didn't really feel it um, necessary to be super close, um, mm -hmm. so I guess 
the other side of the world <laughs> didn't seem like such a, a huge thing for us. And um, I, I, we were, I was just excited to be done with grad school and postdocing and have a job somewhere. Um, when I went for the interview, things felt really good. Um, the work-life balance in New Zealand is is really pretty unbeatable. Um, and they they asked a lot of questions about my family. They wanted to make sure that we were we were going to be okay and that I was going to be able to spend enough time with them. So it just felt like a good fit. Um, and yeah, so we just did it and um, honestly couldn't be happier. It's been awesome. What uh, What's your experience with the church like in New Zealand? How, how has that been or what is that like? Um, so the, the, the area that we moved into was actually the oldest um, functioning district in the church. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and it's mostly because um, you know, New Zealand, the country itself is about as big as Colorado, and it has um, the number of people of the greater Phoenix area. So just over 5 million people in the entire country, with um, the vast majority of those in the North Island. And so when you live in the South Island, it's geographically large, but there's also not a lot of people. And so there just hasn't been a lot of growth um, down there. So um, the church... Uh, I mean, it does it does what it can, but um, it's quite spread out. Like our stake covers probably um, close to five out. Uh, well, probably um, close to seven, um, eight hours north to south Jeez. and close to four hours um, uh, east to west. So it there it presents some challenges there. Um, and but, you know, the. We slotted in. Um, I, I was called to be the elders quorum president the second week <laughs> after we got there. Fresh blood, get him! Yeah, get yeah, him. yeah. A year after that, our district became a stake, and I was called to be um, the first bishop of our ward. Wow. Um, so, yeah, and then, um, yeah. So, so there's there's not a whole lot of people, um, but you know, the church does what it can to support people, and I think. Um, being being really far removed from kind of like the cultural center and things um there are some aspects which i would say are a bit more traditional um which kind of means not super up with maybe the latest policies or whatever you know um give me an idea of that what's one thing that's like that um i'm trying to be careful here sure, <laughs> because sure. i don't want to criticize but um there there does seem to be um, a certain amount of so there used to be this uh, the this temple trip that would happen. So th th this is challenging on a couple of fronts because we have um, the temple that we had was on in Hamilton, which is on the North Island, right mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. um, 45 minutes south of Auckland. We didn't have a temple on the entire South Island. Um, and now there is one or there's about to be one or there just is one. Now, still, there will only be they'll only be on the North Island because one was announced for Wellington, but that's on the South Island or I mean, on the North Island. So the very bottom part of the North Island. Okay. And then they have one being built in Auckland. Okay. So um, it's still a plane ride or a ferry ride, three hour ferry ride to mm -hmm. get to the temple. Um, and the just the way that the the, the youth temple trip um, used to be handled was kind of not. Um, not in accordance with the the like policy suggestions or directives. Um, so people used to do a big fundraiser, 
go up to the temple with the youth and then um the the directive was kind of like well we should go up as families right mm -hmm. um and so when i was bishop i i kind of tried to implement that and there was a lot of pushback um just because people enjoyed going up with the youth you know the youth enjoyed going up um with their leaders and taking a trip to the sure. north island every year getting away from their parents for a couple yeah of years. yeah sure, um, sure. but i i kind of felt like okay well there's a lot of stress on the on the youth leaders right because that's a big responsibility um and the like kind of the purpose of the temple I, um is is families right like um and so i just i felt like it was a bit strange that we were doing this thing where the youth were going away from their families for a week hmm. um and at that time um we also had a scheduled week um, for temple service in the North Island. So our mm -hmm. stake would go up. The, the youth leaders would take the youth up. The parents wouldn't even really see their kids for that entire week at the temple. And then everybody would just come home. Mm -hmm. So we tried to implement something where it was like, okay, we're not going to have an official youth temple trip, but we are going to provide opportunities for youth to go up with their parents or with the you know families of people who they could they could fold into um and there was just a lot of pushback about that and i think you know traditions kind of die hard um and yeah that's i guess that's an example of, yeah. of kind of that way yeah 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 it's interesting like that i whenever i think of things like that i think of um you know, when President Nelson announced that there would be two-hour church instead of mm. three-hour church, uh, a very, what I think is inspired sort of change. Yeah, yeah. But yet there were still people that were like, we need the third hour. Give us the third hour. <laughs> are we not, what do we do in the third hour? Yeah. Do we hold other meetings to make up for the third hour? Like, as a people, and I think just people in general, I don't think this is Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints specific. I think we just struggle with change, especially... If yeah. we have fond memories of whatever that thing is and to think, oh, well, they won't have great memories if they don't do the same, you know, sort of prescribed thing that they do. You know, I don't get the opportunity to talk about New Zealand very often. So I know that we are going to get into every part of uh, your book, which is called And There Was No More and there was no poor among them, liberation, salvation, and the meaning of restoration. But I do have one other question about it. Uh, the sure. former prime minister of New Zealand was a member of the church and had left the church. Is there sort of an ownership uh, uh, of her um, by members of the church? Sort of how uh, here in the United States, um, we we kind of cling to anyone Hollywood mm -hmm. or anyone political, yeah. even if they've like ever walked, related. <laughs> yeah, even if they've ever walked into an LDS church. Yeah, is it like that in New Zealand with uh, Prime Minister Ardern? Um, not in my experience. I mean, some people will say, "Oh, yeah, she's um, she used to be a member of the church, but it's kind of like she used to be a member," you know. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, it's I think um, some it just really depends on who you talk to. Um. I would, I, you know, we would introduce her as such to, to other members or whatever. And, um, it just kind of depends on whether or not, uh, her having formerly been is a good thing or a bad thing to people. Um, but yeah, I mean, most people just, um, I think most members of the church just identified with her either in terms of what they agreed or disagreed with, um, her politics. Um, yeah. So, I was a bit, I guess, yeah, it, come to think of it, it's a bit surprising that there wasn't maybe more ownership because we do tend to 
Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing that was interesting is her uncle was actually the area president. Yeah. Um, for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, uh, and that was, yeah. So, so people would say, oh yeah. Um, Elder Ardern is Jacinta's, um, uh, uncle, you know, so mm -hmm. that connection was there. Um, but I didn't really notice people too much. Maybe my, maybe my wife would disagree with me sort of identifying or taking ownership of her because she used to be a member. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's take a let's take a break. When we come back in the second block, I want to dive uh, full into the subject matter of your book and cool. uh, and ask you what gives you the right. This is not your lane, pal. Uh, what are we doing here? We'll get into yeah, that yeah. in the second block of the cultural hall. I had an email from someone who listens to the cultural hall. I believe it was a not a lifer, but a convert who said, hey, Richie, are you still teaching the podcast classes? And the answer is yes. In fact, I have even fine tuned it more than I ever had before. So you might be asking, well, Richie, how do I get in on that? Well, you can always email contact at the cultural hall dot com or you can find me on social media wherever I'm at. Richie T. Stedman and reach out and say, hey, I listen to the cultural hall. I would love to learn more about podcasting or your podcast services, a class, a cohort. There's a group of people. I've even taught uh, the ward historian about podcasting, what it is and how it might be a great benefit to people. If that's something that you're interested in, whether it's for your business or just for your private hobby, maybe something you see your future in, would love to be able to help you along the way. You can find me again anywhere on social media, Richie T. Stedman, or you can uh, just contact us, contact at theculturalhall.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Let us podcast together. To be clear, this is still a show. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something you Unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember that you can always leave a review for the show. It helps boost us in the algorithm and helps other people who would probably enjoy what we do also be able to enjoy what we do. Uh, you can do that on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening or on Spotify. The rest of them don't really allow you to do it, but if you interact with the show through either Apple or through Spotify, take a moment. Uh, you can tell either uh, an individual episode that you have a particular fondness for. You might say, Dr. Ryan Ward was amazing and say something <laughs> about that there. Or you might uh, just say the show in general is something that you like. Uh, positive comments only. If you don't have anything nice, keep it to yourself. So uh, I apologize because I normally insist on this, Ryan, uh, about calling people if they are doctors, doctors, because you paid oh, for no. it and Please you don't. earned it. Please don't. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> know that in my heart that I insist on it, then I will call you Ryan from here on out because that, sure. is, a big, that is a big deal to me um, mm. that you would, you know, make that educational endeavor as far mm. as you know, going after it and, and doing it. And yeah. it's an amazing accomplishment, one that I hope that you're proud of. Uh, I digress. Let me talk about this. So the name of the book is, and there was no poor among them, Liberation, Salvation, and the Meaning of the Restoration. I'm assuming that that comes from the scripture in Moses, that it's yeah. a little nod to. What on kind of a, a 30,000 foot level, we'll dive closer, is this book about? 
Um, <clears throat> yeah, I've been working on my elevator pitch, um, <laughs> and I still don't think I've got it very good because um, there's just so much that I, I guess, tried to basically just introduce. Um, yeah, on a real general level, this book is my attempt, I guess, to make sense of what what the restoration could mean in in the face of looking out in the world and seeing uh, so much suffering. I mean, mm. basically, there's, you know, you may have heard of or your, your viewers may have heard of this thing called the problem of evil, um, which has been grappled with by theologians um, for uh, centuries, which is basically, if God is all good and all powerful, how is how is there evil in the world? Sure. Right? Um, sure. Why do good things happen to, or why do bad yeah. things happen to good people? All of that kind of stuff. And yeah. I think um, for me in particular, the the slant that I was, was looking at with this book was, um, <clears throat> I think, well, I mean, I, you can't really dispute the fact that there's a lot of suffering, um, particularly among poor and sort of marginalized groups, that is a direct result of choices that um, more affluent um, groups or individuals make. Sure. So this is this book is my way of trying to look at um, that reality and say, okay, I believe I believe in the church and I believe that the church has this kind of special um, mandate to the world. And this was me trying to figure out, maybe expand a little bit what the what the meaning of the restoration could mean um in the face of that reality of you know millions of suffering poor um people throughout the world in our pre-conversation you know before we started recording you sort of mentioned that there were like three scriptures that sort of help frame this idea and i was hoping maybe we could take a moment and and dive into each of those and and really kind of suss out what it is that uh, that you're trying to say a little bit more specifically on the face i think that some people could look at the uh title of your book and be like oh here we go the mormon socialist the mormon you know um united order we have no poor among them we know we're Marxisting our communist way into yeah. all of this. Is that what this is? Well, I mean, it's a really good point. And um, one of the things I, I will say, one of the things that I that I did grapple with in the thinking of and the writing of this book is the really, really strong identification of, I think, the majority of, of members of the church with um, conservative politics. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that go into that, but um, I I I what I was trying to do was to make an argument for um, an basically a temporal obligation to people who are poor, disadvantaged, marginalized, um, oppressed that didn't come across as just strictly a Marxist diatribe. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, now whether or not you sort of identify with or are sympathetic with any of that, those types of politics, what I hope the book does is <clears throat> is frames it in such a way that everybody can agree that we as members of the church have an obligation to better the station of our fellow sisters and brothers. Um 
And that doesn't necessarily just mean that we want to leverage this the power of the state to redistribute wealth, although that probably is involved if you really think about it. Um, so yeah, I I've already been called a Marxist um, and an antichrist. Well, um, sure. Yeah, and and it's the, um, it's I'm, the way I, we engage our Christian brothers and sisters. Yeah, and call them the Antichrist. I'm, and I'm, I mean, I'm happy. I'm happy for that um, to to happen with this topic because I feel like I I knew that um, this was going to touch a nerve for some people. But I what I I feel strongly enough about the the message that I I felt that I just I had to put it out there. Um, and I hope that those people who are looking for uh, something of this nature will will be able to grab onto it. Because I think um, there's there's a lot of people that probably feel like um, the institutional church is maybe a little bit out of touch with some of the real problems in the world today. Because mm -hmm. um, we do tend to kind of spiritualize things, which... Sure. Um, you know, if you take that to its logical extreme, then what goes on in the world isn't really important as long as we just take care of our own spiritual well-being, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like that that's a a, a detrimental way of thinking. Um, and so my hope was to give people who were maybe thinking that the church is out of touch or that they don't have much to hold on to anymore something that they could grab onto um some you know somebody's thinking in uh in these kind of different ways than than have ever been thought or at least to my knowledge put out there you know in kind of a public space so so yeah. let's dive in. Uh, the yeah, the sure. sort of scripture that you share is Moses 7. Obviously, that's the whole chapter, but um, that's the titular uh, portion of the no poor among them. But let's go deeper. Tell me if there's a particular verse or verses, uh, and then what we what we glean from that and how that helps us with salvation and restoration and, and, and yeah. you know, the subject <clears throat> matter. All right. Let me just, um, let me just pull it up real quick. Um, because I want to make sure that I remember why I sent this scripture to sure. you. <laughs> Sorry. And, no, you're fine. And then while while you're uh, drawing that up, I'll, I'll mention the other two as well. If people want to either take this time and, and maybe pause uh, the show and, and read yeah. and then be able to come back and engage in it, or if they just want to have that. And again, these things will be in the show notes, but the other um, two sort of passages or, or, or books or chapters, et cetera, are Mosiah 18, 8 through 10, and then um, Moroni 7. So yeah. uh, let's get into it. Moses 7. Okay, so Moses 7. Um, yeah, this is where um, the, you know, the Joseph Smith um, talks about Enoch and the city of Zion and just a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, I, I feel like for me, the more I reflect on um, maybe the, the unique contribution of a Latter-day Saint theology um, among different Christian disciplines, this really gets to um, a lot of the heart of that. Um, so like you said before, the, the um, you know, the title of the book comes from, from this chapter, which is, you know, the Lord called his people Zion um, because they were one heart and one mind and they dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them. Um, but, 
I think um, if we try to understand uh, the nature of God and why God cares about the suffering of humanity and why that should maybe move us to care more about the suffering of humanity, this chapter is just, I mean, it's just mind-blowing, really. Um, and, you know, I have to I have to just note here that um, Fiona and Terrell Givens have written an entire book on this subject of kind of the the type of God that's portrayed in this chapter. So, I mean, this is this is the chapter where um, Enoch sees basically a vision, right, of of the history of the world. And he notices um, that God is weeping. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And and um, he asks God, he, he's he's kind of flabbergasted. Right. Like he just doesn't understand how a God could actually cry. Right. Because that kind of flies in the face of um, of the notion of a God. Um, gods are supposed to be powerful and they're supposed to be destructive and they're supposed to be, you know, um, and, and what is God like the reason that God gives for crying is this, um, is this, uh, verse 32 said unto Enoch, behold, these, thy brethren, they are the workmanship of mine own hands. I gave unto them their knowledge. I gave unto them their agency. I said that they should love one another and that they should choose me, but behold, they are without affection and they hate their own blood. Right. So. And so basically the reason why God is weeping is because he is looking on creation and he is seeing that his children hate one another and are making one another suffer. Right. And I just for me, that is such a profound statement about the nature of God um, and about the, the purpose of this entire plan. Right. That we refer to as the plan of salvation. Um and I, and I think, and this is um, something that liberation theology, which is the branch of Christian theology that I draw from extensively in this book, um, <clears throat> ties right into that, that idea, is that God weeps when he sees our suffering, and that um, the entire, well, not the entire, but a big, big reason why God chose to enter into human existence as Jesus, right, um, is, is to experience that, to stand in solidarity with us through that, and to um, redeem us from that type of suffering. Um, and, and so I think, um, you know, Moses 7, that's a unique scripture for Latter-day Saints, right? Sure. Other religious traditions don't have that. And so if we can point to something specific to our religious tradition that moves us to think in these ways, um, then I think, I think that's a, a that's big progress. Um, so that's why I chose that particular chapter. Is it powerful? Because, I mean, because there's a few ways that you can sort of take this. Um, you know, oh, you, you know, watch your actions. You don't want to, you <clears throat> know, make God sad. I think is one yeah. way you could certainly react to that. Or, uh, you know, I want to be um, more godlike and, you know, am I weeping for those that might be hurting yeah. and, and suffering around me? I think that's another uh, sort of takeaway from it. An another is, um, as you sort of note, this, this, um, 
this identity of God as a heavenly father who as a father would weep for his children, you know, for his mm. children. So does our, our father in heaven for us. And, and in those choices, is there anything in uh, of those, or maybe ones that I did not suggest that you think are the most powerful or they mm. all just sort of conglomerately yeah. a great lesson to learn? Well, I think, I mean, the, the great thing about scripture um, is that there's any number of, symbols and metaphors and things that you can take from it right so mm -hmm. all, of course all of the things that you have mentioned are are um <clears throat> are powerful and depending on who's reading them in their own personal experience can resonate right um i think if you read this and this is kind of a long chapter and a lot a lot happens in the chapter but if you kind of read um this chapter as a whole um there, there's another piece that I think um, is really significant, right? So Enoch, so in this chapter, Enoch sees God and he sees God crying and he says, how in the world can you cry? And God says, I'm crying because humanity suffers. And then um, a little a little further on down the chapter, um, God shows Enoch the suffering of humanity and Enoch is just blown away. He just, he can't even comprehend it. He can't even handle it and he he starts crying and he says this is so bad that i will refuse to be comforted right he he mm. says there's just no way that i can deal with this um and but god but god says be uh, what do you say something like be of good cheer or basically like okay i know i've just shown you a lot of suffering enoch but all is not lost there is hope Right. And and then what does he show Enoch? He shows Enoch the coming of the son of man in the flesh. Right. So so God's response um, to both the suffering of humanity and um, his good news or his gospel to Enoch, when Enoch says this is too much, I there's no way that this can be righted or solved or you're going to offer me no comfort. God says, no, I am. And this is what it is, right? I am sending Jesus or I am, <clears throat> I, God, you know, um, is coming down to the earth to inhabit a human form as Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and to me, that's just so significant because that, that tells us, um, like I said before, not only that God weeps for our suffering and that God feels in that way that is... Um, maybe a bit different than as portrayed um, in traditional Christianity, but also that God's solution to that suffering is for Jesus to come, right? And so I think if we view um, the ministry and the life and the atonement of Jesus through that lens, that can really help us to understand um you know, some of the things that I, I'm trying to do um, in the in the book, which is sort of reframe our understanding of of our own restoration tradition a little bit in terms of what it has to say about um, helping the suffering people in the world. Um, yeah. And and, you know, if you even go down further, um, Enoch, hears the world herself. Right. Because um, it's personified um, as a woman mm -hmm. groaning right? And weeping and saying, I, I'm suffering, right? Um, and Enoch asks three times, when will the earth find rest, right? So um, 
I, you know, I think it's, it's just really significant that this entire chapter focuses on suffering, whether that's human suffering or the suffering of creation. And Enoch is asking God how God is going to make that right. Um, and I, I mean, I think if, if God, our, our responsibility as saints being here in the world is to, is to participate in God's mission to alleviate um, the suffering of both um, humanity, of creation. Um, and, and for me, that's how I read this chapter. And I think when, when, when I, you know, it comes first in the chapter, but I think the, the culmination of our willingness to enter into this community um, with one another, with the purpose of alleviating one another's sufferings and lifting one another mm -hmm. is Zion, right? That's what it is. And I think the designation and there was no poor among them, it's not a throwaway. Like that, that is the culmination of this way of living in community with one another. And that's a significant, um, that, that's, that's a marker that that defines whether or not that type of Zion community is being participated in. Um, it's not just an outcome. Yeah, uh, that's kind of yeah. It, you made reference to it earlier, and what we don't read in that chapter, and this will sound crude, is we don't hear God saying, "Listen, I made a plan, and people are choosing, and if yeah. they choose that, well, then that's you know, then that's that. You know, too mm. bad." Yeah, they made their choices. They yeah. they picked what they did. That isn't, you know, the the sentiment. And I know that <clears throat> that maybe even borderlines blasphemous a little bit. But mm. to to your point, in the way that sometimes we as humans, you know, will take things. It's like not not my yeah. house, you know, not my circus, mm. not my monkeys. You know, that can be somebody else's problem. Yeah, and, and I think that there is, you know. That, <clears throat> trying to bring that back out that there that there is that very much that individual responsibility on you know all of us with everyone as part of God's plan I think that I think that that is and I think that leads pretty well into um the the next sort of well, if I can um, say just one more okay. thing about that yeah sorry yes. um I think you're absolutely right and um I, what I think is so amazing about this chapter is that God does say people have agency and he's sad because they're choosing to hate one another and to kill each other. But he, he doesn't just leave it at that, right? He yep. doesn't say, there's nothing I can do as God. He says, my plan is to somehow redeem that suffering, yep. right? I am not content, um, and I can't, um, you know, in my love and um, my foresight or whatever, I can't just let that go. Even though people have their agency and they're making one another suffer, somehow I have to be able to redeem that suffering or to reconcile those those fractured relationships, right? Um, and that to me speaks volumes to what God really prioritizes, um, not just giving us agency to, 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 you know, decide whether or not we're going to go to heaven or hell, but like even our choices, our bad choices that impact other people somehow are redeemed through Jesus. Um, and I think that's just that's an amazing um, message. As we take another step down this, the 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 next part, if I if I look at this in uh, in uh, a, a sort of a different lens, where we talk about Moses seven, and it's like, hey, here's the idea. 
Mm. that Mosiah 18 is, and you've promised to it, and you covenanted yeah, with yeah. God to do this. <clears throat> so not only is it this idea that would be great, but also, you, you know, you signed on your physical dotted line <laughs> that you would do this. Uh, most commonly quoted from 18, 8 through 10, is mourn with those that mourn and stand and, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Yeah. Um, let, let's get into this a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, this this has been my favorite scripture for many, many, many years. Um, and I don't, um, I say, <clears throat> the the way I frame it um, in the book is, uh, is talking about covenant community throughout, right? When mm-hmm. we, we, um, God freed Israel from Egyptian slavery and established them as a covenant community, right? Or a covenant people. Um, and when we're baptized, right, that first covenant that we make with God is is this covenant, right? This is the baptismal covenant to mourn, um, comfort, to bear burdens, mourn and comfort um, with our sisters and brothers. And I think um, that this to me, if you really think about what it's saying is just incredibly significant, right? And I and I don't, um, <clears throat> I mean, you, you said a couple minutes ago, and I do I do say it in the book, but I want to make clear that I'm not trying to guilt trip people into thinking this way, right? Sure, sure. I think we do, um, we do uh, uh, enough to make people feel guilty, and I don't want to add to that. But I, 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 what I'm trying to do is, is underscore the gravity of what what a covenant is, right? What that baptismal covenant means is essentially we're covenanting to enter into a community of shared suffering essentially right mm-hmm. um and and we're um you know we're saying i so if you think about the first principles and ordinances of the gospel right first faith in the lord jesus christ second repentance third baptism um what the way i view that kind of progression is um if you you study you meditate you learn about the life of jesus about jesus's mission and um i think moses 7 helps us to to frame it in these terms right Jesus's mission, the reason why Jesus took on human form um, was to be with us in our suffering, right? And to um, redeem us from that suffering, um, if you can think about it in those ways. Sure. And when you come to that realization, right, which is which that's kind of the faith part, um, you repent, right? And I'm not talking about repentance in terms of like itemizing your um, sins and bad behaviors and asking for forgiveness, sure. but the more sort of global um, meaning of repentance from the Greek term, you know, metanoia, President Nelson has spoken about it and others have spoken about it. It's this, it's kind of this like this altering of perspectives that takes place once you realize what Jesus um, was here to do, suddenly you view God Jesus, your life, reality itself in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think then we can say, well, if if Jesus's mission was to enter into humanity and stand in solidarity with us as we suffer, if we're disciples of Jesus, we have to do that as well, right? And so then is the commandment to, or the covenant um, in Mosiah 18, and I think it's um, it's telling that, um, you know, when Alma says this to the people, what do they do? They don't say, yeah, that kind of seems like a lot, right? Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess if we have to sign on to that, we'll do it. 
I mean, oh, let me let me look. I, the kids got soccer. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hang on. I, yeah, 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 we could do that. About, let me work. think about this, and I'll get back to you. What do they do? Sure. They clap their hands, right? This this is what they want to do. This is what they've decided to do. This is what they've come to by themselves um, through their own process. And Alma is just saying what is already in their hearts, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I just, I feel like that scripture is so significant. Um, and one of the things that I, that I talk about in the book um, <clears throat> is this separation between spiritual and temporal, right? That we often, so often do, um, I think, as Christians and, and in the church. And I think if you look at that specific um, covenant that we make, that frames our discipleship in explicitly temporal terms, right? Those right. those are mortal, mortal activities that we enter into. Um, and that says to me that this mortal existence is far more significant than simply being a blip in eternity that determines where we're going to go after this life, right? Right. right. Um, so just really love that. Um that scripture. And I think it's just so significant um, in terms of my thinking. Um, <clears throat> yeah. For this, the, this whole thing, the thing, the thing that resonates with me and uh, I guess I'm sort of drawn uh, as you were talking a, a little bit to uh, a portion of lectures on faith um, where mm. it's, you know, we have faith <clears throat> in the principle, the, the truthfulness of said principle causes us to action and it and it, it almost like you say it's like well once i once i know of this thing uh, any sort of other action you know doesn't doesn't make any sort of sense you we couch the beginning of this conversation in some sort of guilt and, and i and and that's not what this is this mm. is a, a motivation of like the truthfulness where mm. you are drawn then to clap to act yeah and, and what i love what i love about this is and you have probably experienced this as well when you read the scriptures of, um, you know, mourning with those that mourn and standing in comfort with those that stand in need of comfort. And then you step into anything on social media and see mm. other members of the church saying things that you're like, this is not mourning <laughs> with those that are mourning right, and comforting right. those that stand in need of comfort. D to me, I guess there is this odd sense of comfort that that comes to go to to me to know that at any point um as as faith and knowledge around what that means for that individual mm. that the that the truthfulness of that principle can convict them to change even you know even the most yeah vile or even the most you know non-caring for those that you know do yeah. comfort or not mourning or anything like that because it's such a powerful uh, truth and a powerful doctrine. Yeah, no, I I mean, it, it's a great point. And I think, um, <clears throat> I mean, that's essentially what we, that's the only thing that um, anybody can rely on in terms of, you know, making any kind of meaningful change in, in their own or somebody else's life, right? Like it doesn't really help to um, call people out for their bad behavior, yeah. right? Um the, the only thing that can essentially um, change somebody in that way is for them to feel something themselves, right? Yeah. And, and, and the way that I've come to view it is when you really understand um, who God is and what God's purpose in sending Jesus was, you view your own, um, you know, sisters and brothers in their 
as they actually are, right? As God views them. Um, and we view one another in our shared humanity. And it's in that state, it is, it's not, it's simply not tolerable for us to contribute to somebody else's suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and we also feel convicted. Um, you you use that word, and I I say that that's the point of the book in the introduction um, to help to help people um, become convinced and convicted, as I um, have been. And I'm not saying I'm perfect in doing any of this, sure. but I I feel deeply that we really have a covenant obligation to view um, others this way and to, to stand in solidarity with others. Um, and, and in a very and, yeah. practical uh, sort of walked out even a little bit more, I think that that then takes things um, that, you know, are, are sometimes very uh, uh, tiresome, sometimes maybe even we think tedious within the church. Mm. And I think mm. it creates a paradigm shift for those things. Speaking, you know, fairly obviously about things like ministering or about callings or those sort of things. It it doesn't mean that you're always going to enjoy them, but when you're able to grab a hold of them in a, in that sort of different light in the conviction, um, you know, that we've been speaking about as opposed to, yeah, I'm doing this thing again. Well, and I think completely different experience. No, exactly. I mean, and I, um, I'm, I'm going on my, my second round as elders quorum president in my ward. Um, and it was just you and I, one other guy and you guys yeah, yeah. take turns for the rest. He'll be, yeah, the yeah. Bishop and then you'll be back at the Bishop. I get it. I just feel like if, if we did ministering in the church, we would have no other problems. Like mm-hmm. we would not need anything else. Um, but I, I, you know, to underscore your point about sort of like practical actions um, and the relationship um, well, I'm making another point between our practical actions and the relationship of what God is doing in the world, right? Actually, um, my editor pointed this out to me in, when we were going back and forth um, throughout the final sort of revisions. But these, you know, Alma's people um, make this covenant, right, to bear burdens. Mm-hmm. And then this is the same group of people who is then brought um, into bondage later on um and then god promises to deliver them right mm-hmm. but what does he do before that as a as an assurance of his um you know upcoming deliverance he makes their burdens light yeah. right and and my editor um lloyd over at coford pointed out um and had me add um in the final um, version of the book that making burdens light is exactly what these people had covenanted to do yeah. at the edge of the waters of Mormon. So I, and I think a lot of us probably um, tend to think of that verse as like, well, somehow God like physically lightened the burdens or like made their backs stronger or something. But it could also um, very much just have to do with the people rallying around one another and helping them, right? And this is yeah. the covenant that they had made. And this was the way that God's, um, deliverance was realized in their life, right? Mm-hmm. So when we um, when we um, covenant to do those types of things, um, this is this is the way that God acts in other people's lives, yeah. right? Sorry, my 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 child. Uh, oh, you're fine. Down their you're, way in. No, you're fine. Uh, actually, it's a great opportunity. We can take a quick break. 
uh, we'll come back in the third block. There is one more part of scripture, and I want to be uh, true to the time that I said I would take with you. So cool. um, we'll we'll take a break. We'll come back in the third okay. block, and we'll discuss that third part of scripture. And then there's three questions we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. We'll come back and do that in the third block. Best DJ in Utah.com. It's been a while since we've had a new one of these, and I apologize for that. It's because I've been so busy DJing events all over the country, uh, but especially here in Utah. Been able to do some great, uh, you know, weddings. I've done a, a prom or two for different listeners of the Cultural Hall. I love it when you uh, reach out to me at bestdjinutah.com, or uh, you can find the phone number online as well. I would love it if you say, hey, I heard about you on the Cultural Hall, because maybe, just maybe, I give a Cultural Hall discount. Uh, all sorts of events. It doesn't have to be a, a wedding. It could be a community event. Maybe it's a ward or youth activity. I'm doing one of those this summer. In fact, just lock the deal down on that. Uh, whatever it may be, if you need music to accompany your event or you just need a great MC, I would love to be able to help you out. You're simply going to need to go to bestdjinutah.com. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. Our lifetime service guarantee has become the most trusted warranty in the industry. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop computer and they start at only $29 a month. Check us out at PCLaptops.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember that you can become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. What does that mean? It means you get to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group where all the Patreon saints are hanging out. If you go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall and become a patron saint, it also allows you to get our now over 700 episodes much easier to listen to. If you do it the other way, you have to go to the website and download and all the things and it's cumbersome. But if you become a patron saint, it gives you a link so that you could start literally at the very beginning and hear the last 12 years of my life. That's two marriages for crying out loud. <laughs> go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. All right, Dr. Ward, not Dr. Just Ryan. Uh, Let me ask you about Moroni 7. That's sort of the third in our pre-conversation that you talked about uh, that applies to this no poor among them, this caring about mm. others around us. What does Moroni 7 have to do with that? Um, well, yeah, Moroni 7 is, of course, um, Moroni's sort of discourse on charity, right? Um, that That's a big part of that um, that chapter. And for me, um, what we think of charity as the pure love of Christ, right? I was just um, going to say, that's the auto answer. What's charity? Yeah. The pure love of Christ. And we sort of stop thinking about it beyond that. Yeah. And I think, um, okay, well, so what, is that, what does that mean? Um, in the context of what we've been talking about, I, I feel like this, this, is, this is kind of the, the key, right? Um, so if we, we have faith in Jesus or we, we think about Jesus, we ponder Jesus's life and we've, um, we realize that Jesus was God's way of trying to um, alleviate suffering or stand in solidarity with us as we suffer. Um, we, we covenant uh, or, or we, we repent, which is this change in the way that we view things, um, the world, God, our responsibilities. Um, and that comes about because we're blessed with charity, right? The pure love of Christ, meaning love um, that comes from seeing people as God sees them and as Jesus sees them, right? And um, it's pure because we don't have any other motive um, besides uh, just being with one another in our shared humanity, right? And And doing what we can to 
um, help one another flourish is, is kind of the way I think of it. Um, and, and, you know, Moroni doesn't mince words in saying that this is pretty much the greatest, the, the most important thing that we should strive for. Right. And, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and, and God blesses those who are true followers of his son with this kind of love. And so when I view, when I think about it in terms of what we've been talking about, um, I think once we see one another as um, truly as children of God, as sisters and brothers, um, as humans that are that have intrinsic value just because we are who we are, this this is the attitude we have towards one another. This is the love that we we are blessed with. Um, and so um, I mentioned before, you know, th- this is. Well, I didn't mention before, but I will now. Um, this is this is what it means to be of one heart and one mind, right? right. You see one another as you really are. Each person is um, is viewing and supporting that inherent worth of every other person, and that results in this community, this covenant community of Zion, right? And mm-hmm. um, when we view our our um, sisters and brothers in this light, it's not tolerable for anyone to suffer if we can alleviate that um and i think that's where and and there was no poor among them right and we're not just talking um economic poor although i think that's a huge and very um overlooked aspect of our covenant obligations sure but we're talking about anybody who has been traumatized or um you know has any type of condition that that we can we can alleviate somehow, right? Either by standing in solidarity with those people or getting them appropriate um, professional help. You know, I mean, these are the, this is, I think the the metaphor of, of poor people extends further than just economics. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, we, we're coming to the end of the conversation. Um, this is something that, you know, your own personal time, your own personal sacrifice, uh, the the study that went into it the the time um and intensity intensity intent whatever the word is i'm looking <laughs> for right there uh that, that you put towards it but and this question will sound sort of crude but so what why what mm. so what so what ryan yeah. yeah maybe we should maybe we should be but will we is that the point are we missing yeah. you know so what yeah well i mean yeah Exactly. Like there's been, you know, thousands of books written um, on some of these ideas. Um, And I think um, so my particular angle, like I said before, was to approach it in a new way that helps us to. um, So I I don't want to go too long, but just basically like briefly, um, the book does what it does is it traces the evolution of the idea of salvation throughout Judeo-Christian history, right? So my my purpose in doing that is to kind of jolt um, my readership and, I mean, I hope, a truly ambitious goal, but like to jolt the, the church um, into recognizing that God's salvation does not have primarily or exclusively to do with the next life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, throughout history, salvation has been very concerned with what happens here in the world. Um, and the people who are most at risk of 
um, you know, suffering the kind of things that happen in this world are those that are poor or marginalized or disadvantaged in some way, right? Because they're easily taken advantage of, their existence from day to day is pretty tenuous. Um, and so God's salvation for the majority of Christian history has had to do with helping those people, right? Now, it's only since um, the Protestant Reformation really that the idea of salvation has been shifted to the next life. Um, and and so, so, so you ask the question, so what? Um, mm -hmm. My hope is in doing, in writing this book is that I've provided a rigorous enough foundation for people to buy into the idea that not only does salvation have to do with this life, but that we as Latter-day Saints are under a covenant obligation to behave in this way towards our um, fellow saints and um, members of the world, humanity in general, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what What I, the, 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 the perspective that I take in this book is particularly um, that we have an obligation to, well, so the restoration, um, I'm sorry, this is going a little bit no, long. No, you're fine. Um, you're fine. It's the, a the lot. I, what, I, what I've essentially yeah. asked you to do is take <laughs> several hundreds of pages and be like, yeah, yeah give me that yeah. in two minutes. Tell me that. Yeah. So, okay. So um, one, one key to my particular um, perspective is that the restoration um, and the height of the industrial revolution were happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, if you look at what happened in the centuries um, leading up to the, um, industrial revolution, there was a whole bunch of um, political, social, and economic things that happened, which basically um, immiserated millions of people, right? So we have we have colonialism, we have um, legal and social changes in England and Europe. Um, and and all of this was in the service of of ushering in an area, an era of um, economic systems which are sort of like run amok today right mm -hmm. um like a, a capitalist um world and economic system and so my my contention in the book is that the reason the restoration <clears throat> happened at the same time as the height of the revol um the industrial revolution was because god was trying to point to the potential harms of those types of economic systems and call us back as a body of saints to this idea of covenant community and Zion mm. Mm. had been established throughout the history of Christianity. Um, and so, so when you say, so what, the reason I wrote the book is because I had never read or even heard anybody um, connect those two, those two events in that way. And I, and I feel personally um and this is where I'm going to get called a Marxist, but that um, capitalist economic systems are probably the foremost purveyor of the kind of suffering that I think God is trying to alleviate. Mm -hmm. So when you look at Doctrine and Covenants section one, and God says, I, God, knowing the calamity which was to come upon the earth, my um, my perspective is that that calamity is the globalization of these types of economic systems, which are just exploitative and extractive 
in the couple hundred years since the restoration. Um, and so God was trying to basically push back against this idea of individualism and um, all of that stuff that is so central to kind of like the Western way of viewing things. And he was trying to say, okay, th this we're losing sight of this idea of covenant community, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 by the way, here's a group of people in the Americas that had this view, right? This is this was what they they entered into upon baptism. And the Book of Mormon itself is like a cautionary tale of a of a people who privilege um certain segments of society over others, right? Um yeah. and so that's another thing that I that we haven't touched on, but that I I go into in the book is how we can read the Book of Mormon um, as a cautionary tale of a society that chooses not to engage in this kind of a covenant community um, and cares nothing for um, inequality and poverty and things like that. So um, I what I've hoped to do um, by writing the book is to give people who um, is to is to lay out in an intellectually um, rigorous way a case for the restoration as God's response to the kinds of social and economic systems which are so harmful in the world today. Um, and I realized that if I just said that, you know, yeah. um, like on a Facebook comment, people would call me a crackpot, which is why I've tried to um, put in all of the time and the research and and um tried to do it in a in a way that people even if people don't agree with what I said they will at least have to take my questions um seriously and one so, of the things that I love about the audience that we have here with the cultural hall is that there you know undoubtedly there will be some that listened to some of the things that you said and went I do not, I don't even know Ryan and I know I don't politically agree with him or economically agree with him or he's, you know, whatever, right? They're already starting to have those things. But one of the things that I, I am particularly proud of the community which we've curated is that I think that it is a group of people that will listen to this and and be able to, if not um, check out other things that you've written online or purchase your book or, or whatever they would in, engage in in more of your content um, be able to go, let me know a little bit more about what he yeah. said. Let me, let me think about what he said. Okay. This, yeah. this part resonates with me and this part, he is the crackpot that he called himself. Yeah. I don't agree with that at all, but, but <clears throat> I, what I, what I hope and what I love is that, you know, people, I feel like that come to listen to these kind of things, they critically think about what is yeah. said and the, and we don't emotionally react and go, Ooh, you wouldn't believe who was yeah. on and all these kind of things. So well, that's uh, the I mean, that's the hope, I guess. And the risk in writing a book is that you've done your due diligence and you presented <laughs> things in a way that you can reach a, a general audience. Um, but I, but I'm also willing to concede that my own views on some of these things have evolved since sure. since the book. Right. So this is sure. a snapshot of where I was in my journey of thinking about these things. And I, and I felt that it was so significant to me Um and in some ways, there there was a hole um, in terms of scholarship uh, with with framing things in these ways, and so I I just I yeah I felt like I had to put something out there. Yeah. So it remains to be seen whether or not I've been able to walk the line between, you know, political advocacy and faithful engagement. 
I tried very hard to do so, but yeah, some people might have some ideas about that. Sure. Metaphorically speaking, uh, some people may be listening to this and still be living their entire life in Rexburg and that have they have not yet moved yeah. to New Zealand. Who knows? You may be the, uh, <laughs> the causing factor to get them to leave everything that they knew behind and, <laughs> and engage in a new um, sort of discipleship. Uh, Ryan, there are three questions we ask everyone who steps into the culture hall. I believe you have answered one of them already in just sort of our discussion is, is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just got called to be Elders Quorum president in January. Um, up until then, I had been Sunday school uh, gospel doctrine teacher for 18 months, which was my favorite calling ever. Mm-hmm. And I was really glad that I got to do that for the Old Testament year. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. So right now I'm elders quorum president, just um, trying to get things going. Yeah. <laughs> if you could pick a calling, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Um, you know, so like I said, I really loved um, Sunday school teacher um, <clears throat> that that dovetailed nicely with a lot of my own kind of um, explorations into this kind of material and, and theology and um, Christian history and things like that. So I found that really rewarding um, and to share some of those ideas. Um, a lot of those ideas you'll you can see in the first chapter of the book because um, it deals with the Old Testament. Um, I've really loved being a bishop. I mean, there's just really something really, I think, sacred about being in that kind of a space where people trust you with their the real problems of their lives mm-hmm. in such a um, vulnerable way. Um, and I just really love being able to to support people in that way. And there's other things, obviously, about it um, that and church leadership in general that can be very difficult and kind of alienating. But I feel like just being there on the ground level of people's struggles is is really special. Yeah. The final question, we ask you to interpret it however you would like. Um, but the cre- the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Mm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good question. And I think, um, for me, the thing that, um, that keeps me going is, is the, uh, well, two things, I guess if I could kind of roll them into one another, but, um, the restoration is ongoing, right? I mean, I think that is such a powerful concept because that, that leaves room for any kind of, um, any kind of hope or, um, you know, like hope for a change that that anybody might um, might be struggling with, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think um, I also, uh, along with that that idea, is that like we're we're a community of saints that um, are doing this together, right? And so I, I I feel like a lot of times we kind of we think of the stuff that um, we believe as these kind of eternal truths that we just kind of have to suck it up and believe. And if we don't feel comfortable with them, well then too bad. But like for me, um, the, the really significant part of the faith is just the community. Right. And, and I, one of the things that I think is really significant and that we um, didn't have time to get into, but um, that I've written about a little bit is this idea of being the body of Christ. Like, I feel like that is such a significant um, metaphor uh, for the way that we can be with one another in the church and for the way that we as the church can be in the world. Um, and so I just love that. I'm, I'm really, really um, moved 
and by that idea of just being in community with one another. Well, uh, the uh, the name of the book, if people want to be able to purchase it, is And There Was No Poor Among Them, Liberation, Salvation, and the Meaning of Restoration. There is a link to purchase it in the show notes. And again, a shout out to Greg Coford Books for helping um, get us connected to be able to do this interview. Uh, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back row.